This show is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, the Justice League of board game podcasts. Find out more at Dicetower.com. Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamer Podcast. This is episode 324. Hello, everybody. We are so excited to be doing this right up until the end of 2022. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I am your host, Andrew, and I am joined by my lovely, wonderful wife, Anitra. That's me. And this week, I'm sick, and you're not. So <laughs> I'm kind of not sick. <laughs> On this episode of the show, we are going to talk about our top games of 2022. And what does that mean? That basically means our favorite games. They might be games that came out this year. They might not be games that came out this year. Just games that we really loved this year. You and I are going to have three, I think. Yeah, that's the plan. Maybe five. I don't know. And then we're going to try to get the kids on the show as well. And they're going to talk about some games that they really liked this year. I love how you said three, maybe five. At least we know ourselves. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> this is what we do, right? This, sure. is, this is our MO. But um, yeah, we're really looking forward to that. But first, we have all sorts of things to talk about, like a fact. So let's start with a fact. The episode number. So episode 324. My fact here, pulled from the Guinness Book of World Records, I had a couple of choices, obviously, because, you know, they've got a lot of stuff. But the one that I went with is something that I think some of our fans can resonate with. The highest earning Super Smash Brothers player in the world earned about, as of the time this record was set, $324,861. Wow. $324,000 playing a video game. I know other games, people can make millions, but this is a game that our kids play. Let's not tell our children. <laughs> so that's why they're not in the room right now. Right? No. But that is my fact for the episode number. I know it's not uh, super deep or shocking or whatever, but that's what I've got this week. We've also got a message from our sponsor, First Move Financial. Did you know that the best time to start planning for your holiday spending is right now? Which is like shocking because we just got out of the holiday season like a week ago. Why should we start planning for next year now? Well, because one common budget killer is, quote, one time, quote, expenses that creep up on us, even though we really should know they're coming. An easy way to make sure your bank account isn't crying next January is to look at how much you spent on the holidays this past year. Divide that by 12 and then start putting that money aside as part of your regular monthly budget. As a bonus, when all those Christmas in July sales start popping up, you've already got money set aside for buying gifts. To schedule a time to talk to First Move about other ways to take control of your finances, head over to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and set up an initial 15-minute call. All right, thanks so much to the team at First Move Financial for sponsoring another episode of the show. And as we go into 2023, it's going to be the new year when you listen to this. I want to say a special thank you to First Move Financial for sponsoring us throughout this year. There are some things that we absolutely could not have done without that sponsorship. And so we really, truly do appreciate it. So as we always do, let's talk about what we've been playing. I'm just going to go ahead and warn everybody that it's probably going to be more than the first half of the show because boy, howdy. Do we have a monster list this week? You know, a week of the kids being on vacation off of school with at least a few days in there where you weren't working meant we had some time to play games. Well, it wasn't even that. It was that all of our evening things were all canceled for the week. And so we actually had time outside of the normal work day. I know, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, uh, you know, it's funny because 
I thought that we would play more games than we did. And then when I put the list together, I was like, no, no, we played plenty of games. We played a fair number of games. We did. We did. So let's start actually with our New Year's Eve Game Fest. Yes. So we do this every year. We have some amazing friends who have us over and we usually stay up super late and uh, and play games. We kind of time shifted it this year to be a little bit earlier, but we still got lots of game playing in. Let's start off with Framework. Framework is really cool, and I am glad that I pulled it out because it was like, hey, getting started, I don't want to learn something with a lot of rules, and I'm like, have I got the game for you? Well, we actually kind of dropped that multiple times in the evening. Well, yeah, but Framework in particular is, it's not an easy game. Like, it's a heavy, puzzly game, but the rules are easy. Mm, It is mm. easy to understand what is going on. It's just not easy to play well, I think. I think the only thing I didn't super love about Framework is the second somebody drops their last like commitment token or whatever you want to call those things, yeah. job token, the game the is, game over. is immediately instantly over. over. Yeah. And that's a little frustrating. That's fair. But other than that, this is an Uwe Rosenberg game where you are placing tiles that have either goals or these frames, which are the things that satisfy the goals, onto your own personal kind of tile grid. It's... Very, very simple mechanically, but like you said, it's a difficult game to kind of master when to go for something versus when to give up something. It's really interesting. And our friend Dave wrote a review for this about a month ago that's up on the Family Amber's website. Mm-hmm. I really like how quick it is to get started with this game. This is not a game with crazy amounts of setup or anything like that. Literally all of the tiles are in a bag and everybody picks a color of their little player token to mark on their goals that they finish on their own personal setup. And that's it. You pull some number of tiles out of the bag and you start. Yeah, it's very, very simple. This is a game that famously you had said that you and our 11-year-old Asher sat down to figure out a couple of rounds just to see that you could understand how the game worked. And then the next thing you knew, you were playing. I just like, and we're playing. Yeah, and I just think, you know, it's absolutely true. I mean, this was the first time that I had played it and... I pretty much immediately understood how to play the game. It's very, very straightforward, which Mm -hmm. I really like about it. I highly recommend Framework if you want a thinky-puzzly kind of game with a really low barrier to entry. This is a game that kids who struggle with reading could play, although it's a hard game. (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for young kids, but for kids who just don't want to be reading while they're playing, this could be good. Yeah, I mean... It's a hard game to win, but you're still going to get those kind of dopamine hits when you complete a task and get yeah. to put one of your tokens yeah. on. Or sometimes so, multiple tokens, which is well, pretty great. Well, I just feel like if you say it's a hard game, that almost implies that it's a mechanically difficult game to kind of get your head around. And that's not really true. It it's just, just gives you a bunch hard. of hard decisions. Well, it's hard to balance everything because our 11-year-old is famous for this. I mean, famous is relative, but... He'll fixate on a goal and just do that goal to the detriment of everything else. And this is really a game where you've got to hold those goals loosely in your hand. Yeah. Next game that we played was Skull Canyon Ski Fest. Oh, man, do I have opinions about this game. Ooh, me too, but they're probably less salty than yours. (laughs) No, my opinions are not salty. So Skull Canyon Ski Fest is a game from Pandasaurus Games. It came out, uh, I think, last year... Well, it was previewing at PAX Unplugged last year. Maybe it officially came out at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I remember you really talking this one up and how cool it looked. And Yeah, like I mean, really this is one of those idea. games. So this game, the back of the box reads great. It's a game where there's a lot of almost ticket to ride like route completion, I guess you would say. Although you're not really claiming routes in the way that you do in Ticket to Ride. But you're skiing down different paths and you have 
black and blues and greens, and they're all worth different points. And when you ski them, you can kind of claim them as the person with the most fame who has claimed this route on kind of a separate board. That doesn't prevent other people from skiing it, but you know, at the end of the game, those tokens that represent the various people who've claimed routes, you know, will equate out to some points. So you do that, and there's this turn system where you everybody does that, and then you kind of reset, and then everybody does it again, and that happens four times per day. And there's three days in the game. And then at the end of each day, then there's this Tokaido-like movement through the various lodges in the base camp. The apres ski. Yeah. And that's where you buy more gear, or maybe you trade in some of your slope cards for more fame, or draw more slope cards, or whatever. Slope cards are what you use to claim routes. And then you do the next day, and then you go through the whole process, and then you do the next day, and you go through the whole process. So you want to give some of your thoughts on this game, Anitra? Especially at four players, which is how we played, it felt kind of punishing. Like, it was really easy to get knocked off of your route or to spend a whole bunch of time collecting the cards you needed to do a difficult route and then not be able to get there. And the whole apres ski thing is cool, but that's the only way you can get the gear that allows you to gently bend some of the rules. And you only have that opportunity to get gear twice. It's already a third of the way through the game when you first have an opportunity to get gear and use it. You know, so you end up with like at most two pieces of gear, which will probably get very limited use. And you have no control over whether the gear that comes out in a particular round is expensive or cheap or useful to you or useless or anything. Yeah, it's really remarkable, you know, as I think about it, that there's a whole deck of gear cards. I mean, it's not as big as the slope deck, but you only ever see eight of them in a game. Yeah. So that is not great. I mean, my kind of overarching thought about this game is that it needed another level of polish. It needed another round to go through the system and find things to clean up and make better and whatever. One of the things that happened in this game, if you play a Yeti card, which is like a wild card, you move the Yeti around on the map and the Yeti will block a route. If you play two Yeti cards, two wilds as part of a root claim, you trigger an avalanche. Everybody has to slide down the mountain one spot when there's an avalanche and they don't get to actually ski that route. They just have to move down. It messes up everybody's plans when that happens. It's incredibly punishing. I think maybe that was part of the thing with this game. It felt kind of mean, but like mean without a lot of control over like how it was being mean. Admittedly, I don't know much about downhill skiing. It's not my thing. But I never pictured it being that way. I pictured it being the kind of thing where everybody's kind of, if not lifting each other up, then leaving each other alone. Like it's not a... I'm going to try to stop you from doing such and such, or I'm going to do it so much better than you that you won't even bother trying it after me. Like that, it just doesn't fit with what I know of downhill skiing and snowboarding. I mean, sure, like, but you need to make a game out of it, right? Right. I mean, I know you need to make a game out of it, but especially the things like the Yeti and the Avalanche and some of the gear options that make it really, really hard for other people to claim certain routes, that feels punishing in a way that doesn't fit with the rest of the theme. I mean, I certainly think that a game like this with gear, I really would have liked to have seen a lot more gear and a lot more opportunities to use gear because like, I feel like your kit 
is kind of a big part of the skiing process, right? Like, oh, yeah. I got these new goggles and this new helmet and this cool new jacket and blah, 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 blah. Like, you get all this cool stuff and I want to go skiing because I got a new thing. If you want to talk about, like, the essence of skiing, like, that's kind of a big part of it, I think. And that is really not at all captured in this game. What is captured in this game is this incredibly unfair process of working through the game, which is a three-day game where the first player token changes hands at the end of each day. So if you're playing a four-player game, there's one person that has a very clear and distinct disadvantage. That if was you're me. playing a two-player game, you have one player who gets a very clear and distinct advantage, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's yeah. really dumb. It feels weird. I mean, it didn't make a huge difference to me that I never got to be first. But it made a huge but, strategic difference. Well, our scores were very, very close at the end of the game. Well, I was gobsmacked by the fact that our scores were so close, given the inherent unbalances that we felt like we saw in the game. Yeah. Oddly to me, by the end, it felt like one of those games where there are so many things that felt really unbalanced that maybe in the long run, those balance each other out. I don't I, accept that. <laughs> I, no, well, like, I mean, that's like getting lucky with game design. Like, I mean, yeah, but I mean, like in some games, that's really intentional and obvious to see. Like, hey, you're choosing whether to focus on this thing or whether to focus on this thing. And they're both good paths to victory, but you really need to commit like that kind of thing. And while this is not that, the sheer swinginess of how various parts of this worked I felt like I was behind for a good chunk of the game after coming out ahead really early on. I was like, oh, I'm going to go ski this black route, which is going to get me a ton of points early on. Cool. And then almost the entire rest of the game, I was just struggling to get enough cards to do anything else that I wanted to do. But I picked up a little bit of gear that was helpful along the way, and I did a little more, and I just kind of crept up on it and... Although I still came in last, I managed to be right behind everybody else at the end, like literally one point behind. I mean, I guess like I feel like they could have changed the actions and day distribution to make it either way more chaotic because it was truly a round robin or something where it was like four days and instead of four rounds per day or whatever you want to call them, maybe it's two, but you get six actions instead of two. Or something, or something like, like that. that. You yeah. know what I mean? I just because that's really going to give you the opportunity to work through a process, and an avalanche isn't going to be such a crisis when it's going to take you four out of your eight total actions in a given day just to get back to where you were. Like that stinks. Yeah, the avalanche and the and the movement of the yeti is the kind of thing where you've been spending two or three turns getting yourself all set up for the one thing you really want to do. And all of a sudden, oh, nope, sorry, you can't do it. That's the part that really, more than anything else in this game, that was the part that just felt like, why? Why does it have to be this way? Well, really more importantly, it's trivial to do the negative part, whereas it takes so much work to do the positive part. Right, exactly. And that unbalance is really dissatisfying. Because if I had to work to block you, like, okay, it's this, you know, back and forth, tete-a-tete kind of thing, but it's not that. It's, oh, I'm just going to use a wild card in my next random route, and I'm going to move the Yeti to block you. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, you are a jerk. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's yeah, exactly. It's so easy to do that. And look, if Pandasaurus wanted this game to be genuinely cruel, they've succeeded. 
but I don't feel like that's the vibe of the rest of the entire right. it, game. It, it doesn't seem like that's the way the game is supposed to go, which, mm-hmm. is, yeah, it just, there's a real mismatch here, and I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but the Yeti and the Avalanche being so easy to accomplish is part of it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're being profoundly negative about this game, and I guess we are, but it, at the end of the day... An, it was not an unfun game. Uh, well, we I, just don't, wanted... I don't know if I'd go that far. Okay. <laughs> I came in last place. I felt like I struggled through a lot of it. I still had fun with this game, and it's not in spite of the game. Like, the mechanics were interesting and cool, but it just felt like it could have been so much better. And yeah, that's, I think that's, that's my frustration. Yeah, my frustration is just that I feel like there was so much untapped potential because of the lack of polish on this game and the lack of consideration for some of these kind of maybe experiences that they didn't anticipate i don't know it's almost like there's 10 different foundational mechanics in this game and i liked every single one of them but every single one of them had some kind of flaw and when you put all those flaws together it made it really problematic yeah and that's kind of where i ended up with this game yeah so i almost think you know we could house rule a whole bunch of this stuff and then all of a sudden the game would be a lot better but like i don't pay for a game just to turn around and house rule a ton of things. Maybe a small adjustment here or there, but I I feel like this would be a real retooling. I did look at BoardGameGeek, and there is a designer-approved variant that lets you get and use a lot more gear. Good. Um, I mean, and there should be, because that's the fun stuff. Right. So you can tell that some of this stuff has already come up in the last eight to ten months that the game has been out. So that's good. I just wish that maybe that stuff had been dealt with before it was published. Yeah. Well, you know, so that's Skull Canyon Ski Fest. (laughs) Honestly, we didn't hate it. Honestly, we really didn't. But certainly there's many nits to pick. All right. On the extreme opposite end, (laughs) we also played Mata. Again, this time we played it with the maximum player count of five people. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this publicly because the last time we talked about Mata on the show, I was kind of like, meh, this game is meh. Clearly, I was taking this game too seriously. Yes, this is a very casual game. Yes. It's a lot more fun when there's four people that could have something terrible happen to them before something terrible happens to you. (laughs) I suppose that's part of it, yeah. (laughs) It's a lot more fun when it's more likely that someone other than you will bust. That said, I still busted twice, and so in five rounds, somebody won. When somebody has five cards from winning rounds, the game is over. Mm Mm-hmm. So I squeaked this one out. I uh, I scored absolutely terribly, but it was fun. And I think with four or five players, you do actually start to see a strategy of, do I play out this higher number? Because it looks like some people around the table are very likely to bust. Because then if I play out this high number, it doesn't matter if I can play another card on top of it, because then I will have this high number and it will be my scoring card, you know, when the round ends. Yeah, this is definitely a game that still has a heavy luck element to it, and you just kind of have to be okay with it, and that's fine. It's certainly fun to play with a larger group. I think four or five players is the right amount for this. You can play it with two or three, and it's just less fun. The other thing is to keep in mind that pressing your luck more often in this game keeps it more interesting. Yeah. The incentives are not quite always there, but you kind of do the like, eh, what the heck? I'm going to press my luck anyway. Yeah, that's true. And it's just a more interesting experience when you genuinely don't know what's going to happen as opposed to I'm playing my card. I'm drawing my cards. 
I'm playing a card. Right. I'm drawing my cards. I will absolutely say that pressing your luck or, you know, whatever. I don't yeah. remember what the correct term is for it, but it happened way more in this game than any other game that we played. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of that is we realized like, hey, if I start off a round with a bunch of high cards in my hand, why not just take a chance right at the beginning of my turn and be like, I'm just going to pull a card off the deck and have that start my pile. And, and I'll deal with it. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that game is Mata from Helvetic. Uh, we will be putting together a review for that really soon, but we are waiting for it to be more easily available in the US yeah. before we do that. Yep. All right. The last game that we got a chance to play during our little New Year's Eve game fest was Anomia Pop Culture. <laughs> this was awesome. Okay, so we talked about Anomia before. Anomia is this great game where there are a bunch of cards with symbols on them and various topics. And so you go around, it's a party game, you go around and everybody will flip off the top card. And if your symbol matches somebody else's symbol, you have to name something that fits the category on their card while they have to name something that fits the category on your card. Now, whoever does it first wins the card off of the loser's pile and puts it in a little scoring pile of their own. This was absolutely hilarious because we had <laughs> four adults and two kids at the table. Teenagers. Teenagers. Okay, fine. The pop culture references were things like 80s movie or R&B star or old TV show or a bunch of, you know, more modern stuff. Rihanna song. Um <laughs> Uh, well, there was Justin Timberlake song as well. Yep, which, Justin Bieber was in there. Justin Bieber was in there. So I'm going to say... Bruno like, Mars. Yeah. Usually with stuff like this, we're like, oh, you really shouldn't like have a reference device because, I mean, it, the whole point of the game is that you're kind of battle-witzing yeah. it. We threw that all out oh, in this game. This game is better with reference device. Like, there were, you shouldn't be on your phone the whole time, but I don't know any Rihanna song. Like, Diamond, were, is Diamond's a Rihanna song? I don't I, even I think remember. So. There were a couple of times where both... People who had matches were looking at the other person's card and being like, I know nothing. And it became a race to Google it faster. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's not in the spirit of the game, but it just made it, it more was fun. fun though. Yeah, it was fine. I had no problem with it. So that is Anomia Pop Culture. It is hilarious. It's a blast. It's super fun. I recommend it. I think based on our experience with it, I would recommend it the most in a group of people that doesn't all have a common pop culture experience. So whether that totally is agree. a whole wide range of ages or a whole bunch of folks who work together or something like that, not you and your closest friends who all have watched the same movies and listened to the same music for the last 20 years. I mean, you can do that too. Like, that's I mean, fine. Yeah, th that but would I think be it's fine. more interesting when there is that blend and you don't necessarily know what someone does or does not know. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think, I think it's more fun when you get that bigger disparity. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of fun. It's really good. All right, so let's move backwards a little bit now. Um, sure. And the week between Christmas and New Year's, you and I have gotten a chance to play quite a few games. Mm -hmm. One of them was another game of Flamecraft mm. by our daughter's request. This game is so cute. It is so cute. And it's surprisingly meaty is not quite the word, but like there's a lot of stuff you can do. Well, I mean, it's a pretty intense resource management game. Yeah, I really like it. It's very good. That's is, why you like it. I mean, it's a good game. So I like that Claire likes to play it because it has dragons in it. Yeah, I mean, that helps too. Mm -hmm. Possible preview for the second half of the show. Possible. <laughs> uh, we also got in another play of Fife, which now that I have, you know, come into a game really understanding how to play, I like better. I was very good. frustrated after the first play we had. Yep. 
You beat me this time. That I probably did, helped. I mean, it's more that I felt like my plans were coming together and gelling and sure. like I understood what was going on. I didn't really care about score. Yeah. I mean, I really at the end of that game felt like I was just not getting the tokens the that I wanted. You needed. Sure. Yeah. And that was kind of frustrating. But I mean, that's the game. That's how it works. It's fine. Yeah. So we once again barely drew any of the shell tokens. Yeah. That seems really weird to me. I'm wondering how different that will be when we play with more than two players. Yeah, it's the only token that when you pull it, everybody gets something. So, right. All right. We also played a new game from Czech Games Edition. I mean, we've been talking about new games pretty much this whole time. Yeah, well, I mean, playing Craft <laughs> and Fife, though, we've, we had played before. Fife and this before. was Starship Captains. So this is... Totally not at all a Star Trek game. If anyone was wondering, it is not a Star Trek game. Nope, not, nope, nope, nope. What I have been saying, it is a completely non-copyright infringing, but very obviously inspired by... It's an homage. Star Trek. It's an homage yes. to Star Trek. Starship Captains is really neat. I definitely want to play this game more. I don't feel like in one play you can really plumb the depths of the strategy on yeah. a game like this. I, I really felt limited. It had a higher learning curve than I expected. It wasn't really the learning curve for me. I felt like I wanted the game to be longer. Like when we talked about Skull Canyon Ski Fest after we played it, because it was everybody's first time playing it, we had all kind of said that it was a game that both felt too short and too long. Yeah. This wasn't like that. It didn't feel too long, <laughs> but it did feel too short. Starship Captains mostly felt too short. But I think, again, part of that was the learning curve that there are four rounds they're relatively short rounds, but if you know what you're looking for, you can combo things together even very, very early in the game, which we weren't really aware of yet. Yeah, I don't really know that I have quite grokked the combo-tastic part of this game yet. Like, you were like, oh, yeah, there's combos and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? So I look forward to you kicking my tail next time we play. Okay. All right. You can watch me do like five actions to your three next time. Yeah, I mean, is it just because of the whole commander promotion thing? Or? Yeah, that has that's most of it is the okay. commander promotion thing. So going into how the game works a little bit, you have four different kinds of people on your starship. Three ensigns on different tracks, like a movement track, a defense track, and well, it's, a It's commander, engineering, track. and science. I mean, it's commander, engineering, and science. And um, oh, they are the appropriate colors. They are red, blue, and... Beige yellow. They're they're mostly the appropriate colors because the engineer is blue and the okay. yellow is the yellow is reserved for combat. You can spend these little rewards you get along the way to either change the color of one of your ensigns to a different kind of ensign, or you can spend multiple of the the little upgrade rewards to change an ensign to a commander. You mean you can change a Klingon from engineering to command? A la Deep what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not <laughs> You're Star not Trek. sorry at I'm all. I'm not sorry. I'm not. But a commander either has the option to go twice before being recycled back into the queue, or you can go once with the commander and then have them, quote unquote, like command a subordinate and pull that subordinate out of the queue and back into your ready room. Getting commanders early on, I think, is going to be key to being able to do more stuff in the game. Sure. And that makes sense. So, so I, I'm going to enjoy playing that game some more. It's very cool. The components are very well put together. It's got great 
two-layer boards and all of these different little figurines for all the kinds of ensigns and stuff. And it's not like all of the red ensigns look exactly the same and all of the blue ones look exactly the same. They're in a variety of poses and stuff, which is cool. The basic idea of the game is, you know, you are exploring space and completing missions, but also trying to both upgrade technology on your ship and repair damage from your ship because there's a bunch of pirates flying around. Pirates damage your ship all the time. Even when you take out pirates and shoot at them, you also still damage your ship. (laughs) There's a lot of, she cannot take it anymore, Captain. (laughs) Yeah. I did think that the setup for this game was a little onerous, but... I think, again, this is going to be one of those, you do it a couple of times, it won't be quite as It bad. gets easier. Yeah. yeah. But like, I compare it to a game like Framework, where setup is put the bag in the middle of the table and go. I know, right? You know? So, yeah. Another repeat game, we made a little bit more progress on the family challenge, which we did not complete. We'll talk about that later. But we did play some more Quacks as a family. We've also been playing a bunch of Drop It recently, so we finished our 10 by 10 on Drop It, I think, or our 10 plays of Drop It. We've been playing more Block Nest, stuff like that. Quacks of Quedlinburg really is such a fun experience as a family with all of these different skill levels involved because there's so many different ways you can take it, and your actions don't affect anybody else, which is nice. We, at one point, kind of said, okay, if this particular child just completely melts down it's not a big deal <laughs> they can just exit the game yeah and the more we've played it the faster it's gone first of all yep. but the more fun we have with it as a family it is a really good fit for our family where we have you know some casual gamers some heavy gamers some young some middle some old all together everybody likes it everybody can play it yep that is quacks of quedlinburg up next I sat down with our 11-year-old Asher, and we played the prologue mission to Once Upon a Line. So I talked about this a little bit before, and you you had shared kind of some of your thoughts, and you weren't super happy about it. And I said that I thought that maybe some of the issues we had were component-related. I will say that the prologue that we did, everything scratched off way easier. So I really do think it was just a function of that board that we had started with. So just as a reminder, this is a game that kind of has a crossword mechanic to it where you are scratching things off almost like a scratch ticket to reveal letters, to reveal words. And the hunt and the deduction or the mystery of this game is literally to find words that you know that you need to find that are hidden on this board. And you're trying to do that before you have enough bad stuff that happens in the what they call the line of tragedy that you just are completely unable to actually complete the story. It's really interesting. I really like the mechanics about it. They emulate combat with these puzzle kind of mystery things that are really interesting as well. I'm really into it. I know you don't super love it, and that's why you didn't participate when we played the prologue. I think it's I, just I appreciate a, a super it. I just got fr- I got frustrated with the components and the scratching off, and it just brought me out of the game. I love the concept of it. It's a word search as the main puzzle mechanic of this game. Yes. That, I think, is awesome and cool. It just The way it ends up working out, I don't have the patience for it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you said the first time was that it's the messiest game that you've ever played. I I stand by that. And that part did not change. So that's certainly, you know, you need to have like a little plate or something that you can brush these 
you know, things off onto and, and throw them out. That's certainly true, and that's not great, but I think with the way this game works, I don't think you're going to be able to get around that. So uh, that is definitely something to be mindful of. This is, again, a game that's going to be hitting Kickstarter in less than three weeks. I think we're going to put out some kind of a preview. We can share pictures, but obviously not a lot because we don't want to spoil anything. So the tutorial mission is not part of the plot that's in the game that you were going to get if you kickstart the game. So we can certainly show that. Right. But the prologue stuff we're you know, not really going to share a whole lot of that because we don't spoil anything. But that's Once Upon a Line, Lucky Duck Games, really, really interesting ideas. And I think I said this last time, I'll say it again. Either the way this game works is going to hit for you or it's not. There's not a whole lot of in between. I agree. We also played My Christmas Present to You. Yes, you are my player too. Yay. (laughs) Which was Beer and Bread. I picked this up from the Capstone Games booth at PAX Unplugged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had originally seen this at Essen. This is a really interesting two-player game where there's no real plot to the game, but the conceit is that you are villages on either side of a river, and yeah. you are both making beer and making bread. Like, yes. you'd think that, like, the villages would agree to specialize and share, but whatever. Like, one village is just going to brew beer, and the other village will just bake bread. But that's not how it works. You're both doing both and competing for these scarce resources that are needed to do so. I really like the way this game plays a lot with the duality mechanics here, right? So the game alternates between years of plenty and years of famine. So every other year, there's more or less resources. So that's kind of one thing. And then the way the game works is you're going to score a certain number of points for all the bread you've made, and you're going to score a certain number of points for all the beer you've made. And then whichever one of those is lower, that's your final score. That's your final score. So that's another interesting duality thing that this game has. Makes you balance them out. The other interesting duality is that in the years of plenty, the two of you pass your hands of cards back and forth. It becomes like a card drafting kind of thing. It, It becomes a draft kind of thing. But in the years of famine... You hang on to your cards, and instead of trading the whole hand with your opponent, you instead can trade single cards with this kind of market area. It's really neat. It's almost like they had two ideas for a game and kind of mashed them together into one. Kind of, but I like it because it fits well in that theme of like, you have the years of plenty where you're not really worrying about, is there enough stuff to go around, but your choices are harder to plan. I guess it's almost mm. like there's too much. There's too many choices. Right. And then you have the years of famine where there's significantly fewer resources, but you're looking at your hand of cards and, and you're like, well, I'm going to have to use all of these in some way. Yeah. I really like the fact that the strategy is totally different between the rounds, but they're also connected because the cards that you play to get resources, as in not the cards that you play to kind of upgrade your abilities, but the cards you play to get resources during the year of plenty become the foundation of your hand during the years of famine. Yeah. So they do relate the back and forth years through this picking up of the hand thing. But other than that, they really function mechanically pretty differently uh, with regards to the way that you use your hand. Right. It's really nicely layered the way they put all the mechanics together in this one. And the cards are multi-use cards Every single card has three options on it. One is a recipe for either beer or bread. One is, you know, a way to get some of the resources you need. And one is a upgrade of ability. There's a whole bunch of different upgrade slots on your side of the board. 
I mean, they do tend to be like kind of loosely themed. So like if you have a they card do. that's got like a beer recipe on it, it's probably going to be able to be used to harvest things that are going to be useful for beer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you normally don't see hops or water on a card that's a bread recipe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But it's nice. It's a nice game. And we didn't have any trouble understanding it or figuring out how to play. It's just nice. It's a good Very straightforward, game. even though there's a lot going on. We played some more Turing Machine and introduced it to some friends of ours. Man, do I love this game. It's good. It's really good. We played a couple of challenges, I guess, that used the full gamut of questions, which is awesome. Have we done one with six questions yet? I think we've I only we gone had. to five. We only went to five? Okay. Yeah. But we played with four players, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. It's a good game. I, I mean, it's very ingenious. It's brilliant the way it's put together. I, I really don't have anything bad to say about it. I don't know if I'm smart enough to have anything bad to say about it. <laughs> well, here's what I'm going to say. This is one of the first times in my life I've seen a game where I love it and I love everything about it, how it's put together. And I can tell it is because I am squarely in the appropriate audience. Mm -hmm. This is definitely not a game for everybody. Uh, we showed it to a friend of ours and, and she was just like, "I no, no, this is not for me. <laughs> and that's fine this is a straight up logical deduction game you will stretch your brain hard in trying to figure out how to come up with either an answer or at least a better set of questions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. every round and for most people who are not familiar with the abstractions of computer science the theme will not mean anything to you at all yeah it just becomes a hard deduction game that's not just hard in the term hardcore but hard <laughs> meaning difficult challenging yeah yeah but i i was trying to get to the theme part in a very specific way it's not that this game has no theme it's that the theme is so abstract already <laughs> that unless you know and understand the theme the theming of it won't look like anything to you won't mean anything to you sure yeah well i mean Computer science at its foundational level is a fairly abstract thing, right? Uh, yes, so, <laughs> exactly. It's just kind of what happens. Like that's that's how it all works out. But anyway, it's awesome. Another game that you might hear about later, maybe. Back to back with Turing Machine, we actually played another game of Garden Nation. Did the game feel a little bit more concrete to you the second time you played? Because I know that you struggled with it a little bit the first time. Yeah, it did feel more concrete to me. I still cannot wrap my head around the level of planning that is required. So I do not do well in this game. Yeah, it definitely is difficult because you only have two actions that you can perform on your turn. So if you can't get yourself to where you want to be quickly, it's going to be a real struggle to figure out how to kind of take that next step and achieve that goal that you want to get or whatever. Yeah. I find that in a game like this, it's really good to have two or three goals that you can be trading off on working on because you just might not be able to work on, you know, your primary goal at any given time. So you have to kind of have something in the back of your mind that you're aware that you might also want to be working on. Sure. So for me, my primary goal was one of the public goal cards. And then my secondary goal was whatever my hidden goal was, right? So always kind of trying to keep in mind, how can I be advancing things such that at the end of the game, I'm going to score a bunch of points. And that was a good outlet for me when I couldn't work towards accomplishing one of those more immediate rewards. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I don't think I won that game. I don't even remember who did. But that was kind of the way that I played through it, and I really enjoyed it. We've also been playing some more on tour. 
specifically focusing on the Paris and New York version. We released the review for this last week. And so we definitely, obviously, were getting plays in to make sure that we could speak about this in a kind of cogent way. I really like the Paris and New York maps. I really, really liked the way the New York map worked with the looseness of the ferries. I think that out of all four of the maps, on tour US, on tour Europe, and then on tour Paris, and then on tour New York. New York was my favorite. I liked New York, but the looseness of it actually made it much more difficult for me. So, well, I think it's the hardest one. I think it's the yeah. most strategic for sure, because in Paris, you have docks and you go to a place and then you use a dock to go somewhere else. And it's a lot more kind of rigid or structured in that way. And the New York map, if you are. In a neighborhood that is near the water, you can ferry to anywhere. Right. But you also have to make that choice during the course of the game because putting a ferry in means that you're not putting in any numbers in neighborhoods this turn. That's true. But I also think that that makes the planning a little bit more concrete. So although you have more flexibility, you're not kind of throwing stuff together in a loose way and then saving all of your analysis for the actual route building part. You really are committing to the way that your route's going to be early on instead of just kind of building clusters of numbers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of why, although I liked it, it was harder for me than the others and in a way that it didn't quite gel correctly for me, I, I guess. Again, it's not that I didn't like it. I did like it. And I think there's some really cool stuff in New York, but... My tendency with on tour is, yeah, to make clusters of numbers and just be like, all right, if I can enter this cluster like over here somewhere, then I know how I can go through the whole thing. And then I'll come out on the other end and hopefully make it to something else that's bigger. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about on tour. This is a game that just works in my brain. Yeah. The other thing I think we should say here, and we did bring this out in the written review, is that on tour is a multiplayer solo game. There is nothing you can do to affect anyone else's plans mm-hmm. at all. Right. That's true. However, it is far more fun and entertaining in a group than playing it simply by yourself or even as two players. Well, one of the nice things, and this is something I brought out in the review about the fact that nobody can affect each other in that way is that you can loudly and actively root for specific numbers. Right. You can say, come on, I, like we need South to come out in right. the next batch of cards or yep. I want something in the 50s or 60s. Come okay, on, Anitra, let's, go, let's go. Here's a deal, Anitra. I need you to roll a five and a seven. Do you think you can do that for me? <laughs> no, no, five I don't and a seven. I can. I, five and a six does not work, but a five and a seven, that works for me. So let's come on and then i roll like a one and a nine and everybody groans yep yep (laughs) oh for real yeah yeah that is part of what makes on tour really fun all right last game on the list i think last game on my list at least i'm sure is uh quarto this is a game from gigamic that we've talked about a couple of times we really really like this game this is a great game at the beginning of the day when you're both having a cup of coffee it's almost like I don't know, like the brain floss of the day, right? Like it gets (laughs) your brain moving. This is a nice game for that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I really, really like how Quarto handles that three in a row, four in a row idea. Mm -hmm. Unlike any other game, the whole shared pieces. So you're trying to set up the four in a rows, but you're trying to do it in such a way that your opponent can't make a four in a row is really, really brain burning. I don't know. It, I, I like it. 
Yeah, it's excellent. I really enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to writing that review. It's going to be fun. Oh, two more games that I really should mention. Okay. First one is, uh, we have played a couple of times now, Pirate Blast, the Battle for Monkey Island, which is a game from the Little Darlings games, best known for Race to Stupid, which we reviewed a year and a bit ago. Pirate Blast is a super simple, I'm attacking your pirate ship, you're attacking my pirate ship game. Cheap little card game, super fast to get started with. We'll talk more about it later, but we've had some fun playing that as a family. But the other thing that I definitely need to mention, on Christmas Day, my mother mentioned to some of my kids how much she enjoys playing Monopoly. And then at some point, everybody else was kind of floating off to do other things. And I said, you know what, Mom, let me show you this game and see if you like it. Mm -hmm. So we played Monopoly Deal. Although she loves Monopoly, she was willing to admit that when she's actually sitting down to play with a bunch of people, Monopoly Deal might be a better choice. Because it's fast and the goal is really concrete and you're actually playing for a winner rather than playing for someone to slowly annihilate and push out everybody else. <laughs> so that's it. Awesome. But we're not done talking about what we've been playing yet. No, no. <laughs> because we need to do the monthly report. Should we also do the yearly report? Sure. Yes, yeah, we should do the yearly do report. Yeah. So in the month of December, I have played 42 unique games. Well, I have 38 total plays, so obviously you got me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even going to tell you how many total plays. It's a lot. Well, tell me. Tell me. Tell me. 71. Wow. What did you play so much of? Quarto, Touring Machine, Star Trek, Pinball, Splitter. Okay. All right. <laughs> those are my top four because my H index is four. Those are all games that I played at least four times in December. My H index is apparently two. Okay. Uh, I played Anomia Pop Culture three uh, times. Yes. <laughs> yes, you did. Turing Machine three times. And then I have five games that I played two times. Garden Nation, Drop It, Unmatched, Mata, Quarto, and that's it. Okay. So my H&X was super lame at two. I have no fives or dimes or anythings. I played 29 games a total of 38 times. So I did reach my goal of more than a game a day. You did. So that's good. I'm happy about that. Okay. Let's talk about the year yeah let's do that first of all let's talk about our family 10 by 10 challenge for 2022 it, <laughs> it did not happen no there are four games that we actually managed to play 10 times oh we didn't get to five Dang we did it. not get to five so close and every single game on here got played at least four times okay. most of them are five or more all right so we got close on our 10 by 5 and close on our 5 by 10 yes but we didn't go anywhere near our 10 by 10 no <laughs> however the 2023 Board Game Mosaic calendar has an option to do a 10 by 10 or a 20 by 5, or I think in our family's case, a 10 by 5. So yeah, the 10 by 5 seems like the most likely thing. I also yeah. think that this was the first year that our kids really grappled with what a 10 by 10 really meant. And I think they're going to be a lot more careful about the games they pick for the next one. So it might actually be a little bit more possible because they're so much more aware of what 10 games really looks like. Yeah, I think that'll be part of it. Although there were a couple of games picked for our family 10 by 10 this past year that I thought for sure would be easy to run through a bunch of games like Draftosaurus and Spot It. And both of those games, every time it was like, hey, maybe we could play this. Multiple children were just like, nah, nah. Yeah, which was weird and interesting. But 
I also think that halfway through the year, we came to the conclusion that we didn't need all five of us to be playing a game to put it on the 10 by 10. So that really <laughs> helped a lot. <laughs> Games that support five players did not need yeah, all five of, of course. us. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So we kind of made a rule that if at least if two family members were playing, we could put it we on the list. We could count it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think we've gotten a lot of insight on that. I think it is nice to have a concrete family goal like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And it has kept our kids more interested in like, oh, hey, why don't we play this game together? Because having that goal, it's weird to say this, but it kind of gamifies having family game time I don't think it's weird at all. I mean, look at what happened with zombie kids when they had all of those goals to go after. They were ravenous wolves, right? So so I didn't mention it, but I played some zombie kids evolution this past week because they still have some goals they want to go for that require three or four players. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like zombie kids flashback is probably a game we should put on the 2023 10 by 10 because (laughs) we know we're going to get it (laughs) and we know they're going to play the heck out of it. Yeah. Fair. So let's talk about some of those yearly reports. Yes. I am genuinely curious if the number of unique games you played over the course of the year is more than the number of plays that I have over the course of the year. I don't think it's more than the plays you have, but I think my number of unique games is certainly much more than yours. Oh, for sure. What's your number? My unique games is 196. Holy cow. My unique games is 182. So it's way closer than I expected. Yep. How many plays in 2022? I do a lot more repeat plays than you do. Yes, you do. I'm aware of that. 544. Mine is 337. (laughs) Oh, you did not quite hit a game a day. Well, I think we knew that because I couldn't hit a game a month for most of the time, right? So I had one month, which was particularly low. The month of May, I only played 15 games, (laughs) which was the worst. And then the month of December was actually the best. Sure. So there you go. So also of note, I will say my H index for the year is 8. There are eight games that I've played at least eight times in the past year. Mine is six. It will surprise absolutely no one who has been paying attention that my most played game this year is Santorini. <laughs> it's not even close. The next one is unmatched. Um, my most played game is Royal Visit at 12. So <laughs> Royal Visit is in my top five at 10 plays. I have Royal Visit at 12 and then Jekyll versus Hyde, So Clover and Green Team wins at seven. Okay, sure. And then Lonnie Akea drop it and unmatched at six, Quacks, and Baron Park at five. So my top eight, since my age index is eight, is Santorini, Unmatched, A Gentle Rain, which I have played quite a bit of, Royal Visit, The Key, Theft at Cliff Rock Villa, Under Falling Skies, Mall Peak, and Railroading Challenge. Kind of jealous that your The Key is so much higher than mine. Because I really like those games. I don't know why you got to play so much more. All of a sudden, the kids, when we were about to get rid of it, the kids were like, oh, I want to play way more of that. Like, okay. I mean, I'm not going (laughs) to say no. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. Some other random facts for you. I played most of my games in December. I played 235 of my 337 games with you. Aw. Yep. Most of them at home. Shouldn't be a surprise. Most of them at two players. Mm -hmm. And most of them on Saturdays. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, not most of them, but that's the most frequent day on, on which I played. I played games with 41 players, 41 different players. That's pretty much it. Slightly fewer than half of my games are at two players, 46%. Mine is 41% at two mm. players. And I play a lot more one-player games than you as well. Yeah, it didn't even make a percentage of my <laughs> <players>. <laughs> Yeah. All right. 
Well, that was a lot. A lot of uh, yes. stuff. Why don't we welcome a our new community members, and then we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll fetch our children and talk about the Family Gamers' favorite top games for 2022. Okay, let's do that. All right. Welcome to Lori. Welcome to the community. Welcome to Natalie. Welcome to Gaurav. Welcome to Stuart. And welcome to Tamash. Tamash is a Hungarian gentleman that I got to work with when I went to Essen. Super nice guy. Welcome to the community, everybody. You're starting off 2023 right by joining the Family Gamers community. It's the best decision that you've made this year. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not, but... But we're happy to have you. Please head over to the community and say hello to our new community members if you haven't done that already. So let's put in our snap review about the root beer float challenge. Very silly. This is one that I would actually say people should go and watch the video, but you'll hear about it first. Yes. And after that, we'll be right back. All right. What's your favorite part? The ice cream? the root beer, or just the whole experience of getting an ice cream float? That's tough. I think it's the experience. I love the mix of a warm day with some cold ice cream and the crackles of frozen root beer you get on the top. That that part Mm. might be my favorite part. It might be tough to get a root beer float this time of year, though. Or maybe it's just too cold for you. But... You don't have to totally give up the experience. Instead, you can grab this monstrously large can and play the Root Beer Float Challenge. The Root Beer Float Challenge is a family party game for up to eight players from Grey Matters Games. Let's talk about that art, huh? (laughs) The Root Beer Float Challenge comes packaged in this big can, and that actually gives you some idea what to expect here. In the game, you're building a collection of ingredients for a float, And they're all present here in a tangible, physical form that you'll really use in the game. The ice cream ball. Straws. Even a cherry. And the root beer itself, symbolized by the can. The art on the cards is just adequate, but it's clear, and it's put together with a few clever touches. So, Anitra, let's talk mechanics. How do you actually play the root beer float challenge? Well, players are going to take turns, starting with the oldest player. That's me. On your turn, roll the die to determine what kind of challenge you'll face. Solo, co-op, or head-to-head. Then, draw the top card of that challenge type and read it out loud. Challenges use the ingredients in crazy ways. Rolling, flipping, balancing, hitting, or spinning. (laughs) <laughs> the current player can pick their teammate for a co-op challenge or their opponent for a head-to-head challenge. If you win the challenge, you get to pick one ingredient shown on the challenge card to add to your collection. Grab an ingredient card. Yes, if it's a co-op challenge, you each get to pick an ingredient. Then it's the next player's turn to roll the die and attempt a challenge. Your goal is to collect all four ingredient types. Ice cream, root beer, cherry, and straw. First player to get all four of them wins. So, Anitra, what did we expect from the Root Beer Float Challenge? When I saw this game at PAX Unplugged, it seemed fun, but silly and repetitive. Minute to win at challenges are fun, but how many of them can you really do before the group gets tired of it? I figured it would be silly, but we all gathered around the table to play a party table game, and this is not quite that. You definitely need some space to move around. 
So what surprised us about the root beer float challenge? Well, the challenges were pretty funny to watch other people do. <laughs> some of them varied wildly in difficulty, which in some cases actually led our younger players to be a little bit frustrated. Me. Me too. This game is definitely not for the littlest among us or people who have poor fine motor skills. <laughs> but it is a fantastic, if dumb, intentionally, icebreaker or party game for a family that doesn't usually play a lot of games. But they don't mind being somewhat active. This game is really clever. I love finding out new ways to use these ingredients. A few of the challenges were really simple, like asking a player to try and pick which hand hides a cherry. And some were really dumb, like getting two players to hold this ice cream ball between their butts. But most of them were really challenging. The designers found a lot of ways to use the same few elements. And although we initially sat around a table to play, this game definitely kept us moving. So, Anitra, do we recommend the Root Beer Float Challenge? Like we said, this is a great game for younger people, like preteens and teenagers. You can certainly also play it as a family, but only if no one has mobility problems. Quite a few of the challenges ask players to lie on the floor, for example. But it is definitely guaranteed to get your group moving, and it's a great game for winter days when everyone is stuck inside. But not stuck inside the can. I hope not. <laughs> so, Andrew, what are we going to rate this silly game? We're going to rate the Root Beer Float Challenge three scoops of ice cream out of five. And that's the Root Beer Float Challenge in, in a snap. snap. And we're back. The entire Family Gamers family is here to yes. tell you about our favorite game. We dragged them into the room. <laughs> Almost literally. So, Anisha, I think what we will do is we will start with the kids. We'll go from youngest to oldest, because mm -hmm. you and I are, of course, the oldest here. Does that mean you go last? I mean, that means that you and I go last, yes. <laughs> okay. And we will have our kids talk about their favorite game of the year. And maybe a couple of reasons why it's their favorite game of the year. And then we will discharge them to go do kid things like watch TV, because that's what they want to do. Or play video games. Probably just a little bit of TV. And then it'll be bedtime. But anyway, so how does that work for you, Anitra? Does that work? That works for me. Okay. Well, that means that the first person to go is Mr. Elliot. Now, Elliot, do you have a favorite game from 2022? Castle Panic Big Box. Okay, why is Castle Panic Big Box your favorite game from the year? Because it's Castle Panic with all the expansions, and it has new art, which is really fun for, like, everything, and uh, it's fun. And the one time we've played it so far, you had fun? Yeah. yeah. Are you looking forward to playing the expansions that we didn't already have? Yes. Mm. Have you done any comparing of the old Castle Panic to the new Castle Panic, since we have both of them? No, I have not. Okay. Well, but I should. You should. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to add about Castle Panic Big Box being your favorite game of 2022? Uh, no. All right. Well, thank you very much for your help. Time to go put on your pajamas. All right. I guess that means it is Asher's turn. Asher, can you tell us about your top game of 2022? So I really think that I honestly can't go with anything else because... This is my most played game and probably also my favorite game. I just got to go with Santorini. Okay. So let's talk about why Santorini was your favorite game this year and why you played it so much. So it has 
like a lot of replayability with all the different god powers and like different combinations. And then we got the expansion. So that's just more god powers. And then the heroes, which were usually more powerful, but only one time use. And it's still kind of fun as the base game. But when you add in the god powers, it just makes it so much more fun. Well, and you love Greek mythology. Yeah. So that's a big part of this as well, right? Yeah. Anything else you want to add about Santorini as your favorite game of 2022? Nope, I don't think so. Do you want to go visit the real place Santorini sometime? Yeah. Well, there are not gods jumping around on the roof. (laughs) Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. All right, thanks so much, Ash. And uh, you can put on your pajamas too. (laughs) All right. We were going from youngest to oldest. It's time for the... Practically an adult. The the old people. (laughs) Claire, can you tell us about your favorite game from this year? Yes. My favorite game from this year is probably Flamecraft, even though we haven't had it for very long. I think we've had it for a couple of months, and we've played it a couple of times. Yeah. So why do you like Flamecraft so much? Um, Well, first of all, it's dragons. And second of all... They're cute little working dragons. Yeah, I have to admit, I also really like that the dragons are working. They're not just like decoration on the game. They're doing things. Yeah, they're really integrated in with all the people. Any other reasons? I really like the gameplay and the way that you move around and put dragons at shops to do jobs. Yeah, of all the dragon-related games we've played, I think this has given you the most stuff to do do and it's been an interesting game because of that definitely there's a lot of different resources and you can like stock up on them and then use them all for a really hard objective and then you get a bunch of points yeah yeah i really think the thing that has impressed me the most about this game is that it embraced the cute right so all that stuff claire's talking about with how adorable it is and all that stuff is all true but also there is a real resource management game underneath it it's not just this cute stuff. There's actually yeah. good game engineering that has gone in to make this a real game. And that's one of the things that I really love about it. Anything else you want to say about the game, Claire? The saddest thing is that it goes by so fast. <laughs> you would like it to take longer. Well, we could always play it multiple times, you know. I mean, it goes by so fast, but it also takes a long time to play. I think that's a sign of a good game, that it feels like you didn't have enough time, even though the game took a while. So I guess my last question for you, Claire you want to talk about steak tips at all? Well, steak tips is a little dragon that my mom got from Pax Unplugged. He's a meat dragon from Flamecraft. He is a meat dragon, so I thought it would be appropriate to call him steak tips. The name hot dog was suggested, but I preferred steak tips. I thought it was cuter. And he's cute, and he rides around in the hoodie of your sweatshirt now, right? Yes. All right. Anything else you want to tell us about Flamecraft? Nope. <laughs> all right. Off you go. Go put on your pajamas. <laughs> you are also excused. <laughs> All right, Anisha. Well, we've released the kids. So now it is our turn to talk about our lists of our games from 2022. I decided that I would do something a little bit different. And I didn't even tell you this until no. we were on our way down to record. So what I did was I picked uh, three, five, five, three, five. I picked five. Okay, I picked five. <laughs> I picked five games. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did that surprised me slash impressed me in some way and this might mean like there was something mechanically that like i just was blown away by it might mean that just the 
construct of the game was such that I was just really, really impressed with it and didn't expect to be impressed in the way that I was. Stuff like that. Like these are games from this year. I think one of these came out probably before this year in the United States. The rest of them, I think, did come out this year in the United States. But it's just something about it that I didn't expect that really like left a lasting impact on me. Okay. So that's um, my list. Even your description makes me think that there is definitely going to be overlap here because I have a top three and then I kind of have three runners up. Ah, see? Um, Yeah, yeah. But I was going to limit it to a top three, but I'm thinking maybe you go first. If you mention more than one of my top three, I will pull in some of the others. I think we just will both do five. And if I mention one of yours or you mention one of mine, I will say that is also on my list. Okay. And we'll just move on. I think we go round robin on this. Okay. Okay. Which is going to be kind of weird because, like, my criteria is different from your criteria, but that's what makes the show interesting. Your right? criteria is not as different from mine as you would think. Um, <laughs> so, my top game of the year is definitely just my top game of the year. Okay. Which is A Gentle Rain. Okay. Yeah, that's not on my list at all. Probably not going to surprise anybody. Technically, it came out in 2021. Okay. But I first played it in February at the Gutowski's house, mm-hmm. and then I was very happy to get my own copy, and I've played it a bunch. We talked about it when we were talking small box games two weeks ago. I really like it. I'm very honestly, and I'm not like a condescending, I'm so glad you like it. Like, I'm genuinely glad that that game works for you. Yeah. All right. I am actually going to start at number five and work my way up to number one. Is that okay? Okay. So my number five game is Juicy Fruits. This is another game that we were first exposed to when we went and visited uh, Ryan and Aaron Gutowski. I love sliding puzzles. There is this sliding puzzle puzzle in uh, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker that our kids would watch me do and they could never understand how I could figure them out. I just really like sliding puzzles. And Juicy Fruits kind of is like a sliding puzzle in a way. Kind of. You know, the way you slide things on this island determines how you get resources, which you can then turn around and use to do other things, fulfill, you know, things for victory points and stuff like that. The mechanic was really cool. And it really just immediately grabbed me. And so that's why I put it on my list. Okay. Really liked it. And I love how you can kind of add or remove like certain air quote modules to make the game simpler or more complex depending on the level of the people that you're playing with. So that was really nice as well. All right. So now I will get into games that did really impress me or surprised me. My number two game, which fulfills this criteria, is Magic Mountain. You saw this early in March. Mm -hmm. You managed to get a copy and bring it home. And we both just immediately loved this game. It is silly. It is not highly skilled, but it is interesting. And it is one of those games where you've got a little bit of setup, but once the game is set up, you can play it over and over and over again because every game takes maybe five minutes. And when you say a little bit of setup, you don't mean like every single time you play, you have a whole bunch of things you have to do. You just mean like putting the board together. Yeah, taking it out of the box and setting the board up is a little bit of work. Yeah, Magic Mountain is a great game. Not a surprise that it won Kinderspiel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although the official announcement for Kinderspiel, since it's German, uses the German name, which does not translate to Magic Mountain. No, no. So just trust us when we say that it won the 2022 Kinderspiel. <laughs> yeah. I think it's worth mentioning that this is one of that very rare category of game where we try it, we immediately love it so much that we play it a bunch, and then we almost immediately review it. Yep. Normally when we get a game for review, it kind of sits around for a while. We play, we let it sit, we play some more, like we think on it. And some games just grab us right away and we say, yes, we know what to say about this. We want people to know about this as soon as possible. 
Yep, and that was this game. All right, my number four game was First Rat. Okay. So First Rat is a game from Pegasus Spiele. It is a Euro, but it is a Euro that is designed for kids to be able to play. And I was really incredibly impressed at how simple they made a game with such complex mechanics. It's not that it is a simple game, because it's not, but it is so much simpler than most Euros that would give you as many options as First Rat does. Yeah, they made the game incredibly intuitive. Like, incredibly yeah. so. And I was very, very, very impressed by that. And, you know, it's a game that I would recommend to any family with a kid who's in that kind of 8 to 12 range where that kid is a gamer and you want to know what the next thing is for them. Because sometimes when they're in that age range, you're like, well, they're not quite at a level to play, you know, your more complex games, your, I don't know, Terraforming Mars or whatever, but you want to get something in between. This is a space-themed game, but it's not at that kind of a more complex level. Space-themed slash rats in a junkyard themed. Hey, listen. (laughs) It's both. It's a family game. (laughs) But anyway, I was really honestly just super impressed with how they managed to do exactly that. They took a complex theme, they took a, a complex game, air quote, but they made it simple and intuitive enough that kids could play. Yeah. That's my number four. I happen to know that that was on Asher's top three before you made him (laughs) <laughs> um, bring that down to a top one. Aw. Sorry, Asher. Well, I got it in there. <laughs> the last one in my top three is Jekyll versus Hyde. Okay. I almost put that on my list. It you, was it, very close. You didn't put it on your list. I, I am surprised. I did not. I almost did. That was my runner-up. There were so many things that surprised me about this game. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, two-player trick-taking. I can maybe see how that would work. And since then, we've played other two-player trick-taking games. Mm -hmm. They always have to have some kind of twist that give you sort of an extra goal piece that you're looking for as you play the tricks. In Jekyll versus Hyde, somehow they make that so thematic and well done that Jekyll wants things balanced and Hyde wants things totally out of balance if possible. And you've even got the little powers that can shift the game back and forth with that, stealing tricks from the other player and things like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is a really, really great game. And I always am impressed. I feel like this started with the crew, but I'm always impressed when they take a trick-taking game. Well, I guess Fox and Forest came out before the crew, so it couldn't have started with the crew. But they add some wrinkle that makes it genuinely interesting. Like, you think way back, Wizard is kind of the classic, right? Wizard is a classic trick-taking game, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and it's really just impressive to see the way that people seem to come up with more and more interesting and unique ways to use tricks to provide (laughs) scaffolding around a game, right? Like, you think of games like Pococo, right? But in this one, it is quick, it is small, and it is, like you said, incredibly thematic and they did a great job yeah all right i guess that puts me on the spot for my number three now it does my two and my three the reason why my two got a slight edge is because i think it is marginally more family friendly okay marginal so that means three is slightly less family slightly friendly. less family friendly what is number three? my number three is gutenberg okay 
Yep. I freaking love this game so much. It is a fantastic game. It did not make my top three or even my runner up, but it didn't miss it by much. You know, way back, I think it was even before we were doing this show, we had Isle of Sky. Or maybe it was at the beginning of when we were doing It was in the early days, yeah. And Isle of Sky, we picked up because we had played it. And I was just never really a Carcassonne person, but Isle of Sky hit enough of the other buttons that I really, really liked it. And we picked that up. Isle of Sky has this hidden bidding mechanic piece to it, mm-hmm. which Gutenberg also has. Mm-hmm. But Gutenberg does it in a totally different way where literally all you're doing is bidding on the parts of the board that you want to play on first. Yep. And it's so simple. And then on top of that, the way the gears interlock to provide you with special abilities. Oh, I mean, that just icing on the cake. I mean, it's just the, the game is so so smooth. Well, and like you mentioned, the gears, three gears is just the right amount. Yeah, I totally agree. It is enough to give you some variety and make it so that, you know, once you've started putting gears in, you should always be getting some kind of benefit from your gears. But it's not so much that you can be paralyzed by indecision of like, oh, but if I put this gear over there, then maybe this will happen. But then I won't do this. No, you pick some, you put them in. Hopefully they help you. Hopefully they help you at the right time. And there is an option to like pick a gear up and rotate it and put it back down if that helps. Yeah, the implementation of the gears in Gutenberg, I mean, it's obviously completely different from, you know, the way the gears work in Zolkin. But (laughs) it's not as difficult to kind of plan out your turns with Gutenberg because there's only three gears. There's not this like central driving gear. You can pick them up and put them down and there's less sections on each gear. That yeah, you there's only three for. sections on each. So it's just so smart and so slick. I really, really was just super impressed with this game. I, I was into it because of the whole Gutenberg press and all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. the topic was interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we got to play it and just the presentation was fantastic with the typesets and everything about that game was just it super impressed me, and I loved it. That's fair. All right, so that's my number three. All right, well, while you're moving up to number one, I'm moving down to my runners-up. Wow, okay. I Just I'm pointing out here. Like, that's fine. These are my runners-up, mm-hmm. not in my top three, but a game I have really, really liked this year is Three Sisters. Three Sisters is a good game. I'm excited for Motor City, which we should get in the next, like, three weeks. So Three Sisters is from Ben Pitchback and Matt Riddle, who created Fleet the Dice Game, among other things. Mm-hmm. Also several button shy classics. And I like it more than Fleet because I think I like actually having some numbers in the game. Fleet really doesn't have numbers. There's just lots of counting individual things. See, and there's less of, of that in Three Sisters. I kind of feel the opposite. I, I don't know. Like, it, it's not the theme in Fleet the Dice game that I like. I'm not really sure. But for some reason with Three Sisters, like, I still like the game. It's a great game. I'll play it almost anytime mm-hmm. anybody wants to play it. But, like, it feels like it's got a little bit more meat on the bones i'll say and yeah and does. not in the complimentary way oh okay. at least from my perspective like i totally understand how other people might like it and that's totally fine fleet feels to me more like a lean mean dot fill-in machine and <laughs> okay. that appeals to my pleasure centers more okay you know what i mean sure so that's uh, my opinion on it but i meanwhile totally track I, with you it's a great game three sisters i think one of the things i like about it is actually that it handles the dice drafting differently. Mm-hmm. You're still having one player roll and then everybody chooses a die in turn. But 
what the dice do is handled by this little board that goes out. And so it kind of gives you more constraints on what you're doing. But I'm finding that I I kind of like that better. Not that Fleet is wide open, because it's definitely not. But Three Sisters just focuses it down a little bit more. Like, if you take this one with the action you really want, you're also going to take this number to put in your main garden. And that may be what you want, or maybe not so much. Sure. Yeah. I get it. So, yeah. Three Sisters, I really liked it. Was in my runners-up for the year. All right. That brings me to my number two. So this one is up there with Gutenberg, (laughs) but marginally more family-friendly. And the reason why this impressed me so much was because of the negative first impression that I got and how that completely changed over the course of subsequent plays. What game is this? Suspects. Oh, okay, yeah. So I really, really was impressed when we sat down with our family and played Suspects. Because for anybody who's been listening for a while, you've heard this before, but we had this kind of prologue sort of tutorial case. I tried to do it alone, and then you tried to do it, I think, with Claire. I did. And neither one of us did particularly well. Yeah, and it turns out that part of that, I mean, first of all, that prologue case is really hard. Yes, it is um, hard. But the other part of it is, this is not really a great solo game. It's like, totally you, not. You can totally play it solo, But part of what makes the game fun and interesting is having those discussions over what does this clue mean and where should we look next and how do we use this limited, you know, time, quote unquote, we have before we need to start making guesses. Right. So we were kind of afraid to play the game. I have to kind of admit, like, we were a little nervous that we just were not smart. I don't know, not smart enough for it or whatever. But eventually we were like, okay. We got another couple that went to the same technical college that we did, and the four of us played, and we had a great, great time. And we, we were like, between the four of us, we've, we've got to be able to figure this out, figure right? something out, right? And, and, and the answer is, kind of? <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we certainly did better, but we also figured out that we weren't entirely doing it mechanically correctly, and that really helped a lot. But anyway, yeah. so we finished the first proper case from the box. And then we're like, you know what? We need to try this actually as a family. And so we sat down as a family and worked through the second case. I mean, we are the family gamers and we want to talk about this for a family audience. Yeah. And so what I was really impressed by was the fact that because this is one of those things where no one person owns any particular part of it, the members of the group can kind of come and go while you're playing through the game. It almost presents like a cooperative party game in that way. Yeah. So this is not like a murder mystery party where everybody has a role. It's more like we're all sitting down to solve a Hercule Poirot mystery or something like that. Like an Agatha together. Christie kind yeah. of thing. Right. The collective group is the detective. Right. I was just honestly really, really surprised at just how well it went, even with our eight year old. I definitely think Asher and Claire had more useful things to say and do and more insights to it. But Elliot still felt like he was involved. He kind of popped in and out several times, but he'd be like, oh, I think this guy did it. And we're like, okay, I don't think so, but why? Yeah, I'm, willing to, while, I'm willing to hear you out. Weirdo insights actually were <laughs> kind of helpful. But look, the point at the end of the day, what is the point of playing a game together as a, together, air quote, as a family? It's not to beat the game. It's for everyone to have fun. Right. And the fact is that all five of us were involved in some way or another. Some of us were a little more tortured than others. (laughs) But we all worked together and got 
75% of the mystery and we all had fun. Mm-hmm. And I was just really, really impressed by that. I don't necessarily know that this offered dramatically new mechanics, but I think it was a little bit less overbearing than like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective where you're like opening newspapers and combing. Like, I just think that was probably too much and that would really be a turnoff for a family. But something like this where it's cards and, you know, some illustration it's not really that level of turnoff, and I think they really did hit a pretty good balance. The cases that are in Claire Harper Takes the Stage are not quite as difficult as the tutorial, I think, and the fact that you are going to look at every card by the end of the game means that you are going to have all of the information available to you, and you can discern the correct answer somehow. Yeah. You know, it really just was a very good mix of mechanics that at the end of the day, I was really impressed by. And so that's why it's my number two. You know what? It just occurred to me that the way you work through everything and then at the end you kind of check your answer actually reminds me very much of a more grown up feeling Encyclopedia Brown. Because Encyclopedia sure. Brown stories were always like, you went through the whole story, you read the whole thing, and then you kind of get to the end of the story. And there's a bunch of questions of like, who did it? And why did they do it? And where did they go? The idea was to encourage you to go back and look for clues in the story. Right before the parlor right. scene. And then you can like flip to the back of the book and okay, now let's do the big reveal. And this person did this and this, and mm-hmm. it's written as a scene of what happens. Well, that's kind of what we got in Suspects, Claire Harper Takes the Stage. We sat down as a group and at the very end, we're like, okay, so we've determined that we know this, we know this, we know this. We think this one over here is the right answer. And we have no idea about this. All right, let's go find out. Yep. So that was my number two. All right. Suspects. Cool. My other runner up for the year is Papageno. <laughs> Papageno! This is a silly little game. Yeah. I think part of why it made it as high as my runner-up, I do enjoy it, I think it's a fun game, is that this is a very, very light game that Asher enjoys. Asher, at this point in his life, does not like very many light, fast games. Like, Santorini is pretty much the lower limit mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. He will occasionally deign to play things simpler with us, but it's really not his first choice, except Papageno. (laughs) Somehow he also latched onto this, and I think it's partly that you have these hidden cards, but the only way you find out what the hidden card is is when you're getting rid of it. So, like, it's got a little bit of meanness, take that kind of stuff to it. But mostly it's, oh, hey, how lucky am I feeling that I'm going to take this card? Okay, this is a low number, but I might be replacing an even lower number. I don't know. Going to give it a shot. Yeah, Papageno plays for me like a better Cabo. Yeah, I like it much better than Cabo. Yep, yep. I did just check. It is actually available in the U.S. Mm -hmm. through a few places, including Amazon. There you go. All right. Does that mean it's time for my number one? It is time for your number one. I think you know what this is. I have had trouble predicting recently. (laughs) So you're going to say it and I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But I can't predict right now what it's going to be. It's Turing Machine. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. (laughs) The only reason I did not put that in my top three is because it just feels like it's too new right now. And I can't give a verdict other than I really like it, Mm -hmm. but we've had it for like three weeks. So, I mean, I would like to provide for you the backdrop of my criteria for this list. My brain cannot comprehend how they put this game together. (laughs) Sure. 
and how they generated these cards. I mean, I'm sure they did it with some kind of computer program or something. I don't know, but I am so incredibly impressed at the mechanics of putting this game together. It's like when I went to Disney World and I was like, okay, I see how they did that. Okay, I see how they did that. But like the whole scale of it and the scope of everything they're doing, it's so impressive from an engineering perspective. <laughs> yeah. And even though like I know the history of Alan Turing and I know the history of punch cards and computational logic and deduction and a lot of these things, I'm still really impressed by it. <laughs> and I'm really impressed by the flexibility of their system and the fact that they wrote software that knows all of the different potential trial cards and all of the potential answer cards and how to glue them together with the numbered punch cards and make a living and breathing system because with a generator, that's what you have. Yeah. You don't have something where you put some stuff in a box and you shipped it and you're done. Yeah. And I'm just so incredibly impressed by it and i have so much fun playing it even if like my brain doesn't always compute <laughs> and we've had this discussion offline the way that the tests work like it's weird <laughs> in my head but i'm so impressed by what they have put together and what they have turned into a saleable product that literally they cannot keep on the shelves right now yeah it's so good and it's so impressive and you know when thinking about games that most impress me this year there's no other choice than Turing Machine. That is totally fair. That's my list. I'm shocked that we did not have any overlap whatsoever. You were convinced we were going to have overlap. And I, I just was said, convinced. okay. <laughs> now, you did say that you had three runners up. Runner ups? <laughs> runners up. Runners up. Uh, yeah. So, my other runner up is Aldabas. Okay. I We first played this summer, mm -hmm. and I really enjoy. How Aldabas is this very thinky Euro-y puzzle in a small box with very limited setup. I think Aldabas needs to be ripped apart, put back together, rethemed, and redo all the art to fit whatever the new theme is. And I think it will sell a lot better. Yeah, the art, especially the graphic design part of the art, is a little rough. I like the art in the game. I think it's lovely. I think it's pretty. I just don't think, and I was having this conversation with Mark from Grand Gamers Guild, I don't think the theme really resonates with the people that are buying the game. Yeah. I think I, that's the think difficulty. That's the so people that are like, nope, theme doesn't matter. I want the mechanics. Rah, rah, rah. They're going to love this game. Yeah. But I just don't think door knockers on doors in Colombia. Like, listen, I sold this game for four days. Okay. <laughs> I never need to play Aldabas again. <laughs> and it's not because I don't like it. I just think it needs a new theme. And I would actually... I, I should amend that. I would play this game more if I was working it through a new theme. That would be kind of a fun thing for me to do as like a game development concept. Mark, are you listening? <laughs> but I have other game development concepts you in the have hopper many that I really to ought on, to yes. work on a little bit more frequently than uh, re-theming Aldabas. So uh, that's it. That is our top games for the year. There's just so much good gaming content out there for the end of the year. There were so many good games in 2022. There were. And now we get to look forward to good games in 2023. Woohoo! Some of them we know about. Some of them we know that we don't know about. But lots of things that are exciting. Yes. All right. Whenever we do hear about those games, we're going to share those things on social media. So there's lots of different ways that you can pay attention to where we are. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at FamilyGamersAA. All of our Snap Reviews for the last two years almost are on our YouTube channel, 
which is also at Family Gamers AA or youtube.com slash The Family Gamers. We welcome new members to The Family Gamers community on Facebook earlier in the show. You can get there by going to thefamilygamers.com slash community. If you haven't joined the community, you really should. Lots of people are having really great conversations. In fact, that guy I just talked about, Mark from Grand Gamers Guild, shared a picture of him playing none other than Magic, Magic Mountain. Mountain. Yes, he did. <laughs> so you can see what that game looks like. Head over to thefamilygamers.com slash community to join or just, you know, ask some questions about what other people in the community are doing. If you want to ask us questions directly, the community is actually a good place to do that, too. But you could also email us. Andrew at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. You should check out our Family Gamers and Play Games with Your Kids merchandise. Our promo codes have now expired, but we do have amazing t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more at thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, and if you would, please be so kind, leave us a review at Apple Podcast. I know it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, oh, All the more. places, really. Yep. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points like a dragon's horde in Flamecraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's going to be it for us this week. Thanks for sticking with us. And I think next week we will talk about what we're looking forward to in 2023. Maybe. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> You'll have to tune in and find out. All right. So until next week, play, play games, games with, with your, your kids. kids.